Welcome to episode four of the Biscuits and Barrels podcast presented by the Taproom Sports Podcast Network and 90 Second Beer Review. As a reminder, this is our monthly podcast focused on the fantastic combo of hockey and barrel-aged beers. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, before we jump into the show, as a reminder to get uh, all of our beer and sports content, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Taproom Sports Podcast and at 9090 Second Beer Review or on the web at taproomsportspodcast.com or 90secondbeerreview.com. I'm Howard Sider, co-founder of 90 Second Beer Review, and joining me for today's podcast are Ben Larson from the Taproom Sports Podcast Network. Ben, how you doing? Good, man. Enjoying a great weekend. Great weekend right. of sports. It's a, it's a big one this weekend. Um, and then we've also got Ryan Cummings, co-founder of 90 Second Beer Review. What's going on, Ryan? Hey, Howard. Thanks for having me on again absolutely yeah you, you made it through the first episode last time so we figured we'd let you come back <laughs> I, I passed my test i'm good to go now there all right go. good <laughs> uh and then like last month we've got a we've got a special guest with us uh for this episode uh so joining us from Cary, north carolina uh we've got Whit baker who's uh joining us from bond brothers beer company in Cary. uh welcome to the show Whit. hey guys how's it going thanks for having me on good thanks for joining us uh and for everybody who doesn't know Wit uh, is the the proud father of a of a newborn child, and so we are very glad that he was able to make the time to uh, to get on the podcast today. Because uh, as anybody Absolutely. who's a parent knows, uh, not very easy to uh, to find that time these days. Um, so again, thanks, Wit, and uh, Wit. I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show. Big fan of the the barrel program that you and the team at Bond have going, uh, and uh, you were kind enough to uh, to provide us with two different. Uh, barrel-aged beers for us to try on the episode tonight. So while I open this first one up uh, and we start pouring this one, why don't you tell us a little bit about it uh, and then we can kind of jump into a little bit more of that bond. Yeah, sure. So the first beer we're trying is called uh, Apricot Reserve and it's a uh, aged hop um, kind of house culture sour beer uh, that we uh, start in a fooder, which is a big wooden vessel, kind of like a barrel. This one had a secondary aging in second use uh, bourbon barrels that we had previously uh, made a stout in. We kind of blended it out and thought it went well with an apricot um, uh, kind of, or had apricot notes to it. So we added more apricot and then we bottle conditioned it uh, with honey naturally. So um, it's naturally conditioned in the bottom. Um, it, it, I mentioned uh, rolling it before opening. The apricot uh, has a lot of pectin that kind of settles and kind of rolling it before you open it. So it pours uniformly is, uh, ideal or if you want to mess around with the differences in flavor you can drink the top half drink the bottom half um but yeah it's a mixed culture sour beer uh no brewer's yeast was used in this it's all wild yeast and bacteria that's a cool note um and um yeah the second use uh, barrel gives a little bit more um wood character and a little bit less bourbon character um so we get some wood tannins um some uh maybe a little bit of um pencil shavings but in a good way on the back end um and some uh light notes of vanilla that's all from the barrel yeah that's awesome yeah i'm definitely not getting like a like a strong like any kind of bourbon bourbon flavor but the the apricot's really bright on this yeah, yeah i was gonna so say i got a nice oakiness that came through and i, I was that weird kid that like the smell of pencil shaving so this probably works really well <laughs> yeah, for me. So. uh and, and yeah so we didn't even rinse the barrel so whatever was in the bottom of the stout we actually racked off oh wow so um yeah it's surprising how little character uh from the bourbon you get but how much wood character you get on this yeah yeah so with, tell us a little bit about bond brothers uh what, what should our listeners know yeah so bond brothers uh we started in um 
20, uh, I think the shirts say 15, but we opened in 16 in February. Um, we kind of do a little bit of everything. We're sort of like a generalist brewery. So we have lagers, we have ales. Um, so that's most, that's every beer, right? Except for the non-brewers, yeast beers, which we also have uh, as we're drinking one. Um, but um, yeah, we do, we have a large sort of robust sour program. We release, you know, a barrel-aged sour beer or a uh, fooder fermented sour beer um probably like 10 or 12 a year um mm -hmm. so one a month but not not monthly but one a month um and we also in the last two years started our clean barrel program for imperial stouts which is basically just different types of bourbon barrels um we've used some apple brandy barrels we've used some rum barrels but the majority of them are, are bourbon barrels um and yeah we make uh you know thick sweet uh high alcohol mm -hmm. barrel aged beers uh and so those are sort of uh, blended and, and sort of the popular thing to do as uh, most uh, beer nerds know is to add, you know, non-beer non -beer ingredients like uh, vanilla or coffee. And mm -hmm. so we usually team up with uh, somebody or other to come up with some ingredients, um, unless we have a special case like we have tonight on the show where mm -hmm. uh, uh, my my buddy who's uh, really, really uh, smart at coffee, uh, smarter than I am at beer uh, for sure, um, uh told me that if i did not package this beer we're gonna drink as a single barrel he would uh cause me bodily harm so uh, <laughs> and what, and what, and yeah and we're gonna i'm excited to crack that one open in, the, in a little bit but I, I think one of the things i wanted to definitely touch on here uh we were talking a little bit before we were on the recording but uh you know i think one of the things that you and, and the team at bond kind of both focus on and kind of express when you're describing some of these beers is you know the idea of first and second use ingredients or first and second use barrels um, can you just talk a little bit about kind of the, A, kind of what that does for a beer and kind of the thought process around that? And then, uh, you know, again, I mean, thinking about kind of having a sour like this and putting it into a, a second use bourbon barrel that's already had a stout. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't hear from a lot of other breweries that are doing things like this. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that kind of program and thought process. Yeah, so we kind of just made it up on this one. Um, so we were kind of wondering what would happen if we did um, some second use bourbon barrel aging. Um, we, so we tried some, like it was a it was a really low percentage chance of working out, but we had a mild that we tried to put in a second use barrel. And typically when you buy a bourbon barrel, you can assume it's um, pretty sanitary because they have never, never sterile, obviously, but pretty sanitary because it's had bourbon in it, probably has bourbon sort of um, left over in it and it's been bunged. So it's pretty good enough for most beers. And especially if you put a high alcohol beer in it, it's gonna be fine. Um, <laughs> after you put beer in it though, a lot of times it's not going to be very sanitary a second time. And so we were kind of, we, we filled two barrels with mild and those kind of went the wrong way. So we dumped them. Um, but we kind of have always been wanting to kind of get the uh, nuance out of barrels a second time because we use, like you mentioned, we use other things for multiple uses. So uh, when you use a lot of vanilla beans, like we do, um, if you go from clean beer, so stouts and barley wines to sour beer or clean beer to clean beer second use of vanilla is really powerful um so vanilla is one of the first uh, sort of flavor flavors in general but the compounds that your your palate gets blown out too so typically if you taste a lot of vanilla it's way over your threshold for vanilla uh, what you can taste mm -hmm. so it's a good it's a fun uh, nuance to use it again um likewise a lot of so we don't use it with the uh, fruit puree but a lot of people who do um you know whole fruits second use fruit i've had like some really amazing second use fruit beers that for for beer drinkers or for people or drinkers who like complexity mm -hmm. over being hit in the face with fruit uh, a lot of times second use fruit is better than the first use fruit 
Um, it's more nuanced. There's more to think about that kind of stuff. Interesting. And I, I, I would, I, the fruit actually surprised me a little bit only because I, you know, if you're, especially if you're fermenting it out, you know, you'd imagine that there's not gonna be a ton of flavor left to, to contribute from that fruit, but. Well, so what we can get around here. So Jester King, um, does mm -hmm. several, um, right. They have, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but they have a second use raspberry one off atrial rubicide. And they have a um, second use cherry one to try to vor off of Montmorency versus Balaton. Fauna Florida does a lot of second use stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we've done second use fruit, I think, once with puree with really like we had a lot of puree and we did second use. It was pretty good too. Um, no, it's it's pretty wild how much flavor you can pick up off of second use because um, kind of like vanilla, but in a different vein, there's a lot left over. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of it with whole fruit um, is skin contact. Um, and when you drop the sugar, kind of like a piquette or a cider can where there's second runnings, um, wine and second running cider, um, you pull a lot more tannins and those are super fun for pretty much anybody who likes to think about flavor and stuff like that. It adds a whole, di whole different depth of complexity to, to the beverage, whatever that beverage is. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess when you're, when you're thinking about, particularly about the ingredients, when you're using, you know, whether it's vanilla or fruit or, or things like that, a, a second time, I mean, what do you kind of have to factor into that that process? Is it just kind of the intensity of the flavor that's going to bring? Do you have to think about what beer it was in the first the first go around and kind of think about kind of clean to clean or clean to wild and kind of how does that affect kind of putting uh, putting a beer together? Yeah, so for for sanitation reasons, you can't go uh, sour to clean, right? Yep. So that's a thing. Um, but clean to clean is basically uh, size. So typically, if we're doing like you know a twenty or forty barrel batch, we're adding vanilla we may only do a 10 or a 20 barrel batch for second use. So scaling it down a little bit um, and then also amounts. Uh, so we'll, we tend to use um, about two ounces per barrel on vanilla, which is kind of in the middle of vanilla usage. Um, so if we go under or over that, we can adjust the volume of the next thing, but mostly it's nuanced. So it's like, what would uh, benefit from a background sweetness note uh, that vanilla can bring that we have, or sometimes we'll brew in advance to make sure that we have something for it. Um, it also kind of just has the cost of using vanilla, which is pretty right. Dope. I was gonna say the, econo the economics are probably pretty big given the cost of vanilla these days. Yeah, yeah. So vanilla goes for about three hundred fifty dollars a pound, um, somewhere in there. So it's pretty, pretty important to use it as much as possible. Um, yeah. Savings, but yeah, I mean, it also. <clears throat> excuse me. In in most cases, it also makes <clears throat> cool beer a second time, which is pretty dope. So. Yeah. And then I guess yeah. in terms of the barrels themselves, um, I guess kind of how do you think about kind of just managing the actual barrels that you have in at any one time and which barrels are kind of able to, to go through a second use, which are kind of single use type barrels and, and how, does, how does that kind of play out? Yeah. So we do that a little bit different. Um, so we have a, a pretty robust sour holding vessel thing at for volume. Um, we have two uh, unit tanks for uh, packaging and fermenting sours. We have two, uh, two 20 barrels of those, two 15 barrel um, sort of blending or also fermentation, uh, unjacketed bright tanks, and then two 30 barrel fooders. So we've kind of moved away from um, individual barrels for two reasons. Um, one is it's really annoying to have to rack 10 barrels. Um, <laughs> you can just like hook up one thing, uh, hook up one tri-clamp to a, one hose to a, to a tank and, and pull the valve and get you know more than 10 barrels worth of stuff off of it um and then and, the and other, your, your brew team appreciates that yeah for sure yeah yeah and <laughs> the other thing is um we have uh, other than the unjacketed uh vessels that are stainless and pressurizable we have glycol on everything 
So we don't have to worry about the uh, heat in the summertime, which can be a huge factor in creating um, ethyl acetate and uh, acetic acid. So like vinegar and nail polish flavors in your sour beer. Yeah, uh, We see a lot in our barrel. Uh, we sort of saw a good bit in our barrel aged stuff, but we don't see it all in our non-barrel aged stuff. So um, we're pretty, pretty excited about kind of moving away from that. But as far as barrels go, I mean, that lends us to what we have, which is bourbon barrels. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually just did a, a barrel fermentation a couple weeks ago with incendiary which is a, a fairly famous uh, barrel aged out program brewery out of winston-salem also absolutely we did, we did an imperial red with uh kind of uh two different uh microbes a wild yeast Britannomyces, and pediococcus only and we're fermenting that um as an imperial red uh that we're going to actually nitro uh so we're going to serve it on nitro uh so we'll have wow. an imperial red or on nitro uh do you say how i don't think i've ever had a red on nitro before that's yeah so sour sour red on nitro is pretty cool so it's basically really aggressively sour to start with mm -hmm. and then the nitro you get the cascade you get the headstand and that really and the uh, nitro really mellows out the sourness so you're kind of using whereas if you have a guinness or you have i guess guinness is the one everybody's had so the the bitterness uh, so it's pretty bitter um mm -hmm. Those things roll uh, pretty high on IBUs, almost almost at the pale ale level, but the bitterness of the hops and also the bitterness from the roasted barley uh, really balance it out with the kind of um, with the less carbonation um, and, and the nitro. So here, what's doing the action is mostly uh, the tannins from the bourbon barrels. We're fermenting them in bourbon barrels, uh, and then the sourness is going to balance out that lack of carbonation. Um, so you get you end up with a ten percent beer that tastes like. Um, Sort of like a port it's got port vibes to it um we've done it before actually not with incendiary but we've done a similar thing with the collaboration a foundation as a bar in raleigh we've done it with mm -hmm. and it just it's a cool unique thing that no one really does that is fun to drink so we kind of figured out since we both are known a lot a little bit for stouts so we figured we'd uh you know use those barrels to do a secondary fermentation and that's an active fermentation yeah uh, th this one we're drinking actually was finished beer just sort of aged in barrels and then pulled back out of the barrels for secondary use. So this will be, it'll have a different oak quality from the fermentation. Um, when, when wild yeast uh, is fermenting in, uh, in wood, it mm -hmm. tends to eat a lot of wood sugars and, and make that uh, uh, wood present differently than if you just age beer in it. So. Got it. And, uh, and no, and I, that is something that I've always uh, appreciated about what you guys kind of do at Bond and what the tap list look like for anybody who hasn't had a chance to go to carry it and visit the tap room. Uh, you do guys always tend to have a couple things on tap that are uh, maybe outside of the the norm for what you'd see in terms of styles uh, at a brewery, whether it's uh, Ralph beer or uh, English, you know, English mild or uh, even uh, made up styles like we crispy. Um, oh, yeah, we, do, we specialize <laughs> in English lagers also, which is a thing. I think. <laughs> Yeah, you could you I, you I, you could probably affirmatively say that you're the only people specializing in English lagers. Uh, well, we did do so. I got together with a buddy at Vicious Fishes, and we made the um, Corshoes only uh, beer for the mm -hmm. for the triangle, um, which is a autism um, kind of brew to raise money for autism awareness. Um, we actually, uh, yeah, we got a uh, uh, English lager out for everybody to brew. So hopefully everybody will brew one. Um, yeah. That is, that is fantastic. I didn't realize that that was going to be the style for it. For, any, for anybody who's not familiar that, uh, again, Court Shoes Only is a, is a, a kind of a collaborative beer um, that raises money for autism. It started off in uh, Charlotte um, as part of the Queen City Beer Fest. Um, and last year they, during COVID, uh, they kind of did a, a relatively uh, kind of simple hazy IPA 
uh, recipe and then let everybody in kind of the Charlotte area kind of riff on the on that base recipe. And um, people started making checklists and going and check it out. And so this year they're opening it up to the entire state. Uh, and it looks like we're going to have a bunch of... Oh, there's, a couple, there's a couple regions. Um, so there's a session IPA for Asheville. There's now an Imperial Stout for Charlotte, uh, an English lager for uh, Triangle. And I don't know if there... I, there's a fourth one somewhere, but I don't know that one. But yeah, so... Well, I'm, I'm excited that English lager gets uh, is, gets our region. It's good. We're going to have some fun I've stuff heard, to drink in a couple months. I've gotten texts about how to brew an English lager from that email. <laughs> <laughs> this is really the reason you did it. You just you just wanted a, a chance to just talk, meet up and talk with everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. But um, no, there's actually a, um, a brewery called uh, Utopian Brewing in, in the UK that actually does do all local ingredient lagers. So okay. uh, I didn't didn't formally make it up there. It does does happen, but uh yeah i think it's pretty fun to use um you know what we can get from england in the u.s to make a lager it gives a different riff on all these german lager styles um and uh yeah um absolutely it's tasty so so and uh, i guess going back to the 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 sour kind of thing and and some of the the wood aging that you guys are doing i mean you you guys have been making sour beers for for years now um and can you maybe just talk a little bit about how you kind of develop uh you know a house yeast culture that that you're using for these beers and kind of putting uh the bond brothers stamp on some of the the sour beer that you do yeah for sure so um we opened with a not sour fooder mm -hmm. we bought a fooder we opened uh, and used it for a brett ipa called duality of funk which we still do we package this week again um and and kind of the way that um it started was i home brewed sour beer and uh took those cultures and put them in barrels when we opened right um like a lot of people who who homebrew and then start, start a brewery and have a sour program um the way it sort of evolved is uh there it, it's not there's not the big as big of a market as there was right there was a really bit hot flash of sour beer everybody's drinking it and I think everybody got soured out in like, you know, the, the winter of 2018, spring of 2019 zone. Um, so for anybody who does it now, it's sort of a, a passion and you can definitely, you know, sell it. Um, but it does move slower than when people were unable to make sour beer fast enough. Right. There was a, there was right. a and um, not, not talking about kettle sours, right. Goza and, and Berliner Weiss and the fruited Berliner Weiss are still very popular. Um, but yeah. It's more, it's more, it's more wine-like in, in conception where you have to blend various components together. Um, but we kind of settled on what I mentioned earlier, which is like, we have a couple tanks. So we have a large volume relative to um, kind of what's needed. And we are able to then make a lot of beer um, and then age it till it is done, which takes a while. Um, some of these can be upwards of a year, I think. So uh, this beer we're drinking um, took actually six months after packaging to uh get rid of scrub out one off flavor so one thing we're really passionate about a bond is we we carbonate all of our uh bottles and kegs of barrel aged sour beer or, or wood aged sour beer um on uh honey so every one of these bottles has five mils of honey in it and it's bottled flat and we wait till it's carbonated and also it is off flavor devoid of off flavors right um, so DHP or like the Cheerios kind of um, mousy flavor is kind of the last flavor to go away. And, and it so happened that this one, because of the fruit um, in it, usually the fruited ones take longer. Um, it took about, you know, uh, six months or so in the package before we released it. So we released it, I think, a month or two ago, mm -hmm. but it had been packaged since summer of 2021. Um, that's, a, so that's a lot of patience. 
Yeah. So being patient and making sure you know what you're doing and what to look for is kind of a large thing that, that we, we pride ourselves on because we don't release, uh, you know, sour beer, barrel aged sour beer with THP in it. And that's, yeah. that's how we don't do that is we wait until it's gone. Uh, but sometimes it can be a long time. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other important distinction, you know, just kind of, kind of almost wrapping up on sours a little bit is that, you know, I feel like kind of when it was all the rage going back to that kind of 2018 time period, it was, you know, these super acidic, you know, almost like enamel scraping uh, sours that you would get in a lot of cases and, you know, stuff like this. And, you know, any of the sours I've had from Bonner never really at that level of acidity. It, it's much more of a, a tartness to me than kind of an aggressive acidity. Yeah, we, we tend to go for a light, light tartness and um, we tend to use fruit where the acidity from fruit can, can balance or increase complexity of the acid profile more than saying, we want a, you know, non-beer colored beer. Right. Uh, that being said, I'm going to take this base culture. I think this year in the coming months, um, which is our age top sort of food or beer. So it has uh, some characters of, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say the, the L word, but Lambic, uh, some of the, some of the character of Lambic is from the hops, right? And we don't have our, we don't call our beer Lambic. It's not like Lambic, but there is a nod to that with the age top flavor, right? Mm -hmm. um any sort of funky cheese you guys get in this beer the brie rind or that kind of stuff is all the aged hops and, and that's a major component of 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 lambic as well and it's it's 100 from or 99 percent from um the use of aged hops uh so we're gonna take that and we're gonna put a bunch of cherries on it and uh mm. see if we can do a uh cherry aged hop beer i like it and yeah honestly as, as it's warming i'm just getting actually a lot more of the kind of the pectin and the kind of that apricot flavor coming through yeah, it's pretty strong. It's wild. So it's not a lot. Weird is it's very low on apricot. It's about so Howard, you've tried sorcery a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. um, it's a quarter of the fruit we use in sorcery. It's barely any apricot, <laughs> and um, it comes and it comes through just yeah, as strongly, yeah. if not stronger, in the way that it's in the way that it's coming through in this beer. Yeah, and so we wanted it to be a nuance. We're like, we'll cut it in a quarter, and it's more than a nuance. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so now I, I can't uh, I can't wait any longer to open this other bottle because I'm very excited to try this one. So, uh, tell us about the second beer that uh, that you sent us and uh, and uh, what we need to know about this one. What's the uh, rating on the podcast for the the sours? Oh no, I meant like like uh, I can tell you the name, but it might be inappropriate for. Oh no, we're 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 good. To <laughs> oh go. yeah, you, we you're are good. good to go. Go. Oh, no, we okay, are okay, yeah. so very uh, mature. <laughs> this one is the, uh, this one is the barrel to not be saved. So. It's F-A-F-O, and it stands for Fuck Around and Find Out. Um, and so uh, we basically just were tasting barrels, and, and some people freaked out about this barrel. Um, and so we didn't do anything to it. This is a collab with Divine Barrel. Um, what's kind of cool about this barley wine is it is a what's called a smash beer in brewing and home brewing. And a smash beer um, stands for single malt and single hop. So this has Challenger, uh, which is an English hop, and um, Golden Promise which is an English malt. Um, so it is a single malt, a single hop. It's boiled. Um, for those of you who do brew, um, I'm assuming there's there's a couple people at least that listen to this podcast that also brew. Um, you'll note that uh, Maris Otter, uh, uh, Golden Promise, those kind of malts are sort of in the um, you know gold to uh, light amber zone. This beer is very, very, very dark. Uh, we boiled this thing for, uh, I think, five or seven hours to get it dark enough. Um, wow. Uh, and to get that body and sweetness, then we put it in a barrel for two years. I think this is possibly a 20, this is like fall of 2019 brew we did with Divine Barrel. 
that was that was actually the thing that stood out to me as I'm pouring. I'm like, I'm like, are you sure that this wasn't a, a stout that you guys put in a, in a bottle and named as labeled as a barley wine? <laughs> yeah, no, it is not. It is not. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a English barley wine. It's got that sweet molasses. It finishes also sweet. You definitely want to sip it on a cold night. There's a lot of bourbon character. Um, um, the the specific barrel is escaping me, but um, I don't drink uh, bourbon, so I don't have the sort of Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the 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 type of barrels locked in as well as some of the other people at Bond. Um, but yeah, so we um, for whatever reason this barrel like you know was sort of the 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 honey barrel as they say in bourbon or like the sweet kind of uh, the best uh, of the mix. We got like about eight or ten barrels out of the Divine Barrel collab, and so we have a beer on that is um, the other barrels blended with a barrel of stout with coffee and coconut um, called Get mm-hmm. Off My Yard. Uh, which is a pun for my art reactions, um, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Uh, but then we have, yeah, we have um, this one barrel by itself because it was so good. Yeah, this is, I mean, a, a definitely a different, a slightly different play, favor, uh, flavor profile than a lot of barley wines. I mean, it, the the molasses and a lot, like picking up a lot of vanilla from the from the bourbon barrel that's yep. um, coming through really nice. And it's not, I mean, there's not a ton of alcohol heat for something that's 13.4% and been sitting in a, in a bourbon barrel for an extended period of time. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things is that um, those, if you if you rest a beer for long enough, a lot of those, some of those higher alcohols will break down over time um, and you can get a really smooth uh, beer out of it at some point. So yeah, so this is obviously a first use barrel. Um, hopefully everybody tastes a lot of bourbon and also barrel character on this. Um, and yeah, we basically just open the barrel um, uh, and then we fill it with beer um, and then sit it in a room. We have a uh, thing that's used to chill potatoes, um, sort of keep a potato cooler. So it's mm-hmm. like partly cool. So we keep it at like 65, the room all year round. Okay. Um, we have a dehumidifier so it doesn't get too humid in there. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, basically a, you know, roll up warehouse uh, room full of barrels that we uh, age strong beer in and then blend it out as, as uh, we have stock for it. Um, still working on maxing it out and, yeah, we, we like what we put out of here, so. Yeah, and I, I guess in terms of aging clear beer, and, and I guess maybe this is actually an interesting time to talk about the fact that you guys do have two locations. Uh, oh, yeah, yes, yes. And, and so maybe talk a little bit about kind of barrel aging clear beer and some of the, the considerations that go in there because it's uh, maybe a little bit more temperamental, a little bit more uh, at risk than uh, than some of the sour beer that you're that you're aging right now. Yeah, so um, I don't think it's too – so it typically – if you roll a dark, um, you know, 13 plus percent beer uh, into bur- into fresh bourbon barrels, um, it's not very temperamental. It's mm-hmm. basically based on time. Um, we do all double mash, like iterative mash, really long boil, um, final f- uh, high finishing gravity. We shoot between 10 and 20 Play-Doh, um, which is pretty high for finishing. Um, and we start between um, 30 and 40. Um, mm-hmm. And we basically look for something that is going to be bulletproof in, in barrels for a long time. It kind of does give a lot of uh, uh, nuance over time. Um, so literally the thing with, with fresh beer, when you don't have uh, wild yeast or bacteria is when you say, when you talk about antioxidants, they literally do resist oxidation and um, anything long boiled has more antioxidants, anything dark has more antioxidants. So mm-hmm. you're preventing oxygen from, giving a papery flavor um, when you put those kind of beers into barrels if they're clean and already done fermenting so sure and uh and you know this beer 
Uh, it doesn't really fit with this because it's, you know, single malt, single hop, single barrel. But a lot of the stouts that you guys are putting out are on, you know, chocolate, coffee, vanilla, things like that. How are you guys doing some of the other kind of adjunct ingredients in some of these barrel aged beers? Does it go straight into the wood with that beer for a certain period of time? Is it finished in a, in a bright tank afterwards? Kind of how do you go about that process? Yeah, we basically pick a blend. Um, and usually if we're going to add stuff, which we usually do, like you're saying, um, we determine that what we're going to add um, when we pick the blend. Sometimes we'll like have a list of five things and, and kind of go with it. Um, and then we just kind of put it in a bright tank and add the ingredients. Yeah. So um, it's kind of safer to add secondary ingredients by sanitizing them and putting them in a bright tank and aging them uh, that way than it is, say, put them in a barrel. Um, I do mm -hmm. know some people put vanilla beans in a barrel, but like we talked about, if you put vanilla beans in a barrel, getting them out is kind of a pain, right? Number one. Number two, uh, you definitely can't reuse them after that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you can't get them out, unless you're making a sour beer. So we tend to put things in, we tend to add all, keep beer, but just beer until we put it in a pie tank and then we'll add the other ingredients. Sure. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, it's definitely fun to add uh, the non-beer, the culinary ingredients uh, into beer um, and, and get more of a more well-rounded beer or get like fix a hole in a beer as far as the palate goes. Um, yeah. So it's, it's fun to, it's fun to mess around with sort of the, how a beer presents itself uh, before and after and predict kind of what happens um, with that stuff. So I guess that's the question I would have for you. Is there, you know, when you go into it, do you always have a vision of where I want to go with this or do you notice that it kind of starts going a certain way and you go, you know what, Hey, let's throw some vanilla on this. Cause I think that would really, you know, accentuate the, whatever it is yeah you kind of have to um be flexible so you're presented with some barrels um some samples and you can't really go into it with any sort of um preconceived notions about kind of what you want to do because you're going to make your best beer because they are blended they're all blended ales right like one thing we've noticed is one barrel of barley wine and like 10 barrels of stout as a blend uh presents smoother than 10 barrels of stout or 11 barrels of stout um and so, yeah, you kind of go in and you kind of, it sounds like uh, I'm not dodging the question, but mm -hmm. you kind of have to like feel it out uh, and figure out what you want to do. Um, yeah, I'm, there's not really, uh, it's just like practice and, uh, and kind of figuring out if a barrel's ready, if a barrel's not ready. So for us, we use a pretty hefty bittering charge um, and we kind of look for the inflection point at about a year old um, where the beer stops being aggressively bitter and starts being smooth. Um, that's where we know it's usually ready to blend. Sometimes it happens at eight months. Sometimes it happens at like 18 months. Um, and, and they're all effectively the same IBUs um, or pretty close. Like close enough, it shouldn't be a nine-month swing, but that's just how barrel aging works. Mm -hmm. And once you've identified that, then you look for flavors. Um, kind of the softball is always to add vanilla. Um, for us, we got we got a black and white roasters. There's a coffee roast around here that um, uh, I'm buds with the, the coffee, the main coffee dude there. And uh, he will come out and taste a beer um, and he's, you know, he's a very big bourbon taster as well. So he'll come out taste a beer uh, and say, okay, cool. I got a roast for you. Or, or he'll custom roast beans for us. So for us, we lean on vanilla and coffee pretty heavily um, because we have access to cool coffee and uh, yeah, vanilla. I mean, vanilla is the sort of the thing to add to stats these days. So. <laughs> and so when you guys are going through this, I mean, how, how frequently are you guys tasting barrels and, and kind of how is that process work for, for you and the bond team? 
Yeah, so um, used to be more frequently. Um, now we kind of have it locked in where we can do it um, every couple of weeks or months. Um, we put out a lot of barrel aged beer, and we are working on building up our stock back right now. Uh, so, uh, so there's uh, definitely there's definitely no ch- uh, trouble selling uh, barrel aged uh, stouts and barley wines these days. No. Sours, sours maybe a little bit more of a challenge, but uh... yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were not prepared for um, the. Uh, how fast we sold barrel aged beers. We, 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 the plan was to have one on the tap room at all times. And starting in like May of 2021, we, we released, we started sort of releasing stuff in summer of 2020. And by May of 2021, we ran through all our stock. Um, yeah. more or less. So we are, we are working on building that back up for sure. Um, that's gonna be a big push this year to get the stuff out. So, I mean, we'll have like one or two more, but then, um, Ideally, this fall and this winter, we'll be able to do like kind of one in, one out and do, you know, one a month also, kind of like our sour program. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, Ben, any, any more questions for, for Wit? This, no, is I just, great. this is one of the smoothest barley wines I've had. This is pretty awesome. So, oh, thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. It's, uh, cheers. Yeah, it's definitely a, um, a barley wine to sip on a, a cold night outside, like now. Yeah. yeah yeah which is uh yeah it's working out really nicely when it's uh it's pretty cold here in north carolina right now yeah, re- yeah. relative to what it normally is yeah uh, yeah that's important for people uh, yes I, I assume it's colder where ryan is but yes uh, yeah yeah and, and, and a lot warmer where ben is out in san jose yep. yeah uh, <laughs> uh well Whit, thanks again for for taking the time to join us for the podcast and and for uh letting us try these uh really awesome examples of, of different types of barrel aged beers um, so before, before we wrap up the segment, um, where can people kind of find out more about Bond Brothers? Where can they come uh, visit the taproom? Yeah, so uh, we have two tap rooms in Cary. We have a sort of music venue uh, inspired thing east side where the uh, clean barrels are. And we have our main tap room, uh, we call west side, but it's just called Bond Brothers, uh, which is where the brewery is about a mile and a half away. Um, and uh, yeah, bondbrothersbeer.com. Um, you can check out all our stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we sell around the triangle. Um, so Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, and, uh, yeah, come out and check us out. Cool. Thanks a lot. Whit. appreciate you t- taking the time to join us and, uh, we're going to look forward to keep sipping these beers as we, uh, jump into some hockey. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Right. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Do you like sports? Yeah. Do you like beer? Yeah. Well, the perfect podcast exists for you. Tune in every Monday as I, Jordan, stacks on stacks on stacks, lats. And me, Big Ball and Ben Larson, as we recap the weekend sports, preview upcoming games, and review quality craft brews on the Taproom Sports Podcast. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcast fix. Visit taproomsportspodcast.com for more info. And we're back. So for everybody that, uh, you know, just kind of got to hear us talk a little bit about uh, Bond Brothers beers with wit, uh, try the uh, the apricot sour uh, aged in bourbon barrels and the uh, bourbon barrel aged barley wine that he had. Uh, Ryan and I were able to drink along with him uh, and enjoy the beers thoroughly. Uh, unfortunately, due to shipping issues, uh, Ben Larson uh, did not get the beers in time. So he's drinking something else today. Uh, so Ben, why don't you tell us what you're drinking? Yeah, so I'm going with a, uh, a Belgian quadruple here, uh, coming in at 10.8%. And this is from Brewery Vivant. Um, so this is the Wizards Burial Ground for the 2021 edition. 
Um, so a little bit different. It's going to be uh, aged in uh, in bourbon, bourbon barrels. Um, wow. So we'll get that, uh, that extra little bourbon taste there. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Yeah. Bourbon barrel aged quad. You don't find too many of those in the market these days. Not at all. Not at all. All right, so let's uh, let's go ahead and move into the hockey aspect of the podcast. Uh, we are going to start with uh, kind of moving around the NHL. We are halfway through the season, um, so we got we got a, a few things to look about, and uh, we're going to move over to Howard to start this off with some midseason breakouts and busts. Yeah, so you know, in the last couple of episodes, we've spent most of our time talking about teams, about the standings, things like that. But you know, now that we're getting kind of close into the uh, halfway point of the season, I thought it was uh, time to talk a little bit about some of the the players that have really stood out to us, either good or bad. Um, so we're each going to go through our three breakouts and our three busts uh, for the first half of the season. Uh, I'm going to start us off on this one, um, and I'm going to start us off with our break with my breakouts. So first up for me, and this is one that really you know I maybe saw coming a year or two down the line. It was not something I expected to be a, a story for the 21, 22 season, but it's Troy Terry and the ducks youth movement. Um, and I put Troy Terry up front on this one because I mean, he, he really has been, you know, the, the leader of that team this year. He's, he came out of nowhere, frankly. I mean, he was a decent prospect. He was somebody that people were excited about. I don't think anybody expected him to be the elite scorer that he's already been this year. Um, and then, you know, it would not be, uh, a hockey podcast at this point in the season, if we weren't talking about Trevor Zegris and the yep. amazing, amazing impact that he has had and absolutely lighting the league on fire with his highlight real goals and his incredible skills. Um, and I think it's a really bright future in Anaheim. I think it's, it's great for hockey in California, uh, the, the youth movement they're having there. Uh, so that was first and foremost for me. The second uh, is probably one that's not getting a whole lot of national media attention, but I think is really important to bring up. And that's Tristan Yari, who's the uh, the Penguins' starting goalie. Uh, again, not a very popular name, not somebody that gets a lot of attention. Um, the Penguins are playing fantastic hockey right now, uh, but Tristan Yari is pretty much the reason why they are where they are in the standings. I mean, he his statistically has been the best goalie in the league this year. Um, he's had a phenomenal season. They've had periods of the year, a big chunk of it, without a Gunny Malkin. Uh, Crosby's missed a little piece here and there. Um, and he's basically kept them in it throughout. Um, and I think kind of with him, I think the other important storyline that kind of goes with Tristan Yar, and we can talk about it more kind of as we go through the season is really a, a changing of the guard uh, amongst the goalie ranks. Uh, you know, you look at some of the kind of key goalie statistics this year, you look in the top 10 and you have names like Tristan Yar, you have Frederick Anderson, you have Jack Campbell, Jake Ettinger, Jeremy Swayman, UC Soros. Like these are names that were not amongst the Vezina favorites uh, just going into the preseason. And so I think really impressive and really exciting for the NHL that so many of these new goalies uh, are really kind of popping up and uh, really taking ownership of the league this year. So uh, I have a question for you on that one, Howard. Sure. Do you think that goalies are going the way of like running backs in the NFL where you're going to have goalies that are good for, you know, two, three years, and then they've kind of peaked and they fall off? And we, the days of the Martin Brodeurs and Patrick Waz are are gone. Because I, I feel yeah. like we're kind of moving that direction. I don't know if we're still going to be getting the Wa, Luongo, uh, Brodeur, et cetera, that are coming through as much as I feel like we're getting kind of short peaks out of these goalies and they last three years and then they kind of fall off and you're on to the next name. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a two-step process, right? It's one, it's they're not playing enough games. 
The other is is kind of the butterfly style and just the kind of the increasing risk of, of hip injuries. And so I think it naturally has to has to kind of go by the way of the dinosaur, kind of that dominant Brodeur type goalie, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably something, you know, like the equivalent of uh, catchers in baseball. And, you know, I think that there's a life expectancy on catchers where, you know, you just can't expect being in that crouch position to be around for all that long. Um, and, you know, probably the same, you know, Rick DiPietro, uh, you know, his hips rest in peace. They're probably held together by drywall screws at this point. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that there's a history of goalies, you know, just having their their lower bodies fail on them from having the strain and, you know, particularly the up and down, uh, you know, the way they play these days. Well, I think we can also kind of throw into the popularity of being a goalie now. It yep. used to be so unpopular to be a goalie. You just kind of got stuck back in goal. So there were those, you know, one or two goaltenders that would really flourish. But now, you know, you've got, you know, you've got so much more to choose from. And I think that's why we don't have the duration. And, and that, like, if you go down and you have an off year, you're yep. going to be replaced. And then yep. there's so many goalies out there that if you're replaced, then you're automatically going to move to that number two instead of being a number one goaltender. And then yeah. as a number two, if you have a couple, you know, more of those bad games, then you're done. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I'd probably put in the, the injury history as well. You know, mm -hmm. maybe it's a little, uh, you know, Bledsoe Brady situation, but like they're getting more chances, you know, as opposed to being the 70 game player where you only get, you know, 12 games out of the year. Now you're kind of actually seeing that it's probably more of a, you know, 60, 30, you know, 50, you know, 50, 50 split. Yeah. And, you know, you're or 60, 40, 50, 50 split. My math was horrible there. Um, you know, so I think you're probably seeing that come out more where the younger goalies are getting more of a chance and actually kind of transitions them in to that role. Yeah. But it also transitions them back out of that role. Yep. No, I I understand. Agree. Yep. Um, and so my final breakout, and this is one I'm I gotta I gotta make myself eat a little bit of crow here because this was a one of my big takes from our uh, season preview episode uh, that I was a hundred percent wrong on. Uh, Tony D'Angelo. Uh, it looked like his career was heading to a premature end. He, you know, the Rangers had kind of buried him in the AHL after some some significant locker room issues uh, during his time with the Rangers. Uh, the Hurricanes took a flyer on him uh, in the offseason. I, I did not think this was going to work out. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't have been more wrong. He's been one of the leaders of that team. He's been one of the highest point getters on that team. He's been a phenomenal top-pairing defenseman for them uh, for large chunks of the season. Uh, that Canes locker room seems to have brought him under control. Um, and he's looking like a future all-star. Uh, and so, and that, that is so huge for that Hurricanes team after the loss of Dougie Hamilton. Uh, to have somebody like D'Angelo step in uh, and they basically not lose a beat in terms of that offensive defenseman in their top four. You know, they have the Slavens, the Slavens, the Pesci's, they have the great defensive defenseman, but having a guy like D'Angelo step into that Dougie Hamilton kind of offensive defenseman role in the top four, uh, just a humongous breakout for him. Yeah, I mean, um, for him, it was never yeah. about talent, right? It was always about his yep. mental situation. Um, you know, very Evander Kane-like, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, so I guess the question is, you know, are you ever out of the woods on that? You know, does he ever revert? Um, you know, and like I said, it's not about talent. I fully yeah. expect that if he gets in the league, he can play. It's just about, you know, can he stay in the league? And and we'll see. But, you know, again, for, for the first half of 2021-2022 season, uh, an unquestioned uh, breakout star. 
so turning to the the bus side of things, uh, the first one, sorry, Ryan, it's got to be the Islanders. Uh, I know they've had a lot of adversity this year. They had the you know 13 game road, road trip to start the season uh, while they waited for UBS Arena to get fixed. They had uh, one of the longest uh, COVID outbreaks that the NHL refused to call a COVID outbreak and give them a pause. <laughs> uh, so they were basically playing uh, most of the eight. Yeah, so they they were basically tr- trotting out an AHL roster for uh, a good chunk of a uh, of a couple games there. They've had a lot. If of all things... those losses count for the Bridgeport Islanders, then yep. you know things are things are okay. <laughs> so, so a lot of things going against them. But again, I mean, this was my my preseason best bet for for Stanley Cup champion, uh, given the odds they were laid and given where they went the last two years. Uh, they've significantly underperformed. They still have some games at hand. If they turn it on in the second half of the season, they're still a shot at a wild card spot. Um, but I mean, unquestionably the, the biggest bust of the first half of the year. Um, my other two, I mean, one is a much more general one, the, the struggling Western conference stars. Um, and this was something that really kind of sunk in for me as I kind of was looking around the league, trying to see where things kind of played out relative to my expectations. And in the Western conference, there seems to be a lot of established offensive stars that have just had abysmal starts to the year. I mean, Jonathan Taves, as of the last time I looked, I mean, he was only up to four goals. Uh, Elias Pedersen on the Vancouver Canucks seems to have taken a material step back, which is just, you know, that team has been on a great run since they brought in, uh, Boudreaux as their, their coach and mm-hmm. very exciting for them. But I mean, they're, they're paying Patterson on a bridge deal to be that first line elite scorer. And he just has not been that anymore. Uh, and then the stars, you know, look, Ben's favorite Joe Pavelski has had a, a phenomenal year. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, it wasn't that long ago. These are two of the faces of the NHL, two of the best scorers out there. And they have just not been very impressive this year. I mean, they are at best kind of middle of the pack on their own team at this point. Um, and so, I, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think, and we'll, we'll talk about it more as we get later into this episode. Um, I think overall in the Western Conference, a real changing of the guard this year in terms of the elite players in that conference. Um, and then my last one, and then, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on is, uh, the Seattle Kraken goalies, um, you know, coming into the year, Ben, you and I talked a lot about this on the preseason episode, uh, the Kraken, were going to be a defense and goalie oriented team. Uh, everybody thought it was this big coup when they signed Grubauer away. Uh, they got Dreger in the draft and signed him. Uh, everybody was expecting this team to be this grinded out low scoring, uh, defense and goaltending oriented team. Uh, and they've been awful. I mean, just awful. Grubauer has horrendous numbers this year. He's sub 900, right? Yeah, yeah. he is sub 900. Uh, it has not been pretty, and they have predictably struggled to score. And so you add all that up, and you have one of the worst teams in the Western Conference. Uh, I mean, and so it shouldn't just be a, a shock. I mean, I think looking at their roster preseason, they rattle off a few wins at the beginning of the year, which was yeah. kind of surprising. But, I mean, I think everybody unanimously said that roster looked brutal. Like, I'm not yeah. really sure how they put that team together. Uh, no, absolutely. It's, it's going to be, they've got pieces to work with, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a longer uh, ascent for the Seattle Kraken. Uh, and with that, uh, Ryan, let's turn it over to you. Let's, uh, what, what, let's hear what your breakouts and busts are for the first half of the season. Yeah. I mean, so my first one, and I, I would say that I think you kind of stole a couple things from me here because I was originally <laughs> going to talk about the goalie movement and the young goalies coming through with Anderson and Campbell and you know a couple that you forgot I'm going to call you out on this and sure. you know, Sorokin and <laughs> Shesterkin um but and- see I, I expected them to be good I didn't expect Jake Ettinger and Tristan Yari to be amongst the, the top fair fair so you know I, I'm going to go a different direction with this and this might be a uh, a cold take but 
Alex Ovechkin is on pace to tie his Hot career take. high in points. Hot with, take. He's one at of the my... age of 36. I mean, let's let's talk about that. At the age of 36, he's on pace to have his you know career high, and you know I, I think that's just something that you know I'm rooting for him personally to to beat Gretzky's record. Um, you know I yep. think that he can very much do it, and I think he's proving that he can do it. So uh, you know I think as far as a player goes. I was always a big Mario Lemieux fan. I think he really models that style of play, the really aggressive, hard-nosed uh, style, but also, you know, skilled, very skilled. And, and longevity. I mean, absolutely. So, so I, one, one question I do have for you guys. So given the way that his career is progressing, it wouldn't be unreasonable that once he retires, uh, the Capitals see fit to uh, to build him a little statue outside of the, uh, the arena there. Uh, how, how do we feel about the statue of a, of a Russian uh, in Washington, D.C.? Uh, <laughs> I can't wait for it to be a hot stick. Hot well, hot I just stick assume that it's going to be bugged. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, unquestionably, the great eight. I mean, he's 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 amazing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, this Ryan, this was going to be one of my breakouts, too. And, you know, just the the sheer numbers that he's putting up, you know, at being 36 is absolutely incredible. 58 points so far this, this year in 42 games. And that's almost a 1.4 point per game average, which is unheard of, which is absolutely unheard of 29 goals, 29 assists. And to be doing it both ways too, not only is he putting the puck in the back of the net, but he's also, you know, pushing the puck to the players and playing smart hockey which yeah. I think is, is the biggest thing that we, you know, we can look at with Ovechkin is, is just his hockey sense that he still has. I mean, we knew coming in from, you know, when he first started in this league, but to be still doing it at 36 is absolutely incredible to me. I think yeah. also worth, worth quickly pointing out, he's done it for most of this year without Nicholas Backstrom too. Yeah. And yep. that's, I mean, that's, that's usually been his sidekick on that top line and Backstrom, I think is still sub 10 games this year. Um, so, I mean, even more impressive that he was doing without it, without, you know, his, his centerman uh, for a large chunk. So uh, Ryan, Ryan, what else do you got for your breakouts? Yeah. So, you know, I'd say the second thing I'm going to go with is offensive defensemen. So right now we have three D men on pace for uh, point per game on the season. And the only time that that has been done in the 2000s, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test Ben on this one actually, and see if mm-hmm. Ben would know this one. Does he happen to know who the two defensemen that were point per game play, uh, pace over a full season, who they were? There's a reason why I'm calling Ben out on this. I'm gonna I'd say, say this feels like gonna a gonna West Coast. Yeah, it's gonna be a West Coast um, point per game. I don't. I, I want, mean, if, he, he if he doesn't get maybe it, we I could do. Go. Brent Burns and uh, and Carlson there is is going to be that, my those are the two my yeah. two guesses yeah not no, the with the sharks two, but... yeah the only two in the two thousands which yeah. is pretty crazy to think right and right now you have Hedman Fox and Yossi all there or above it and Latang you know he missed I think five games uh, if he wasn't he would be on that point per game pace so mm-hmm. all of them are very much you know in that race which is pretty crazy to think about yeah and I guess you know thinking. As I mentioned, Fox, you know, my third point is that the Rangers are performing well above expectations. Uh, you know, I, I think we've seen them dip a bit uh, in where they've been, but they're kind of maintaining that top level status, which is uh, not what we expected. I would say they've definitely come along quicker. And, you know, I think the contributions from I think Kreider at the moment has the uh, the goal uh, tied with Ovechkin uh, and one ahead of as of today. 
Uh, I believe it was tied with Ovechkin and one ahead of Dreisaitl for the NHL lead in scoring, which is unreal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of players on the Rangers I think you could have potentially predicted as being in the running for the NHL scoring lead uh, at the halfway mark. And Kreider was at least third, if not fourth on that list among Rangers that you could have put in the, into that uh, comp- competition. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately for Ryan and I, uh, yeah, the Rangers have been fantastic this year and uh, they're a scary team right now. Um, yeah. So what do you got for us on bus, Ryan? Yeah. So I like to keep it positive. So I'm going to keep this short. Um, you know, I think two busts as far as talent on the team, uh, you know, I would say probably not so much in expectations, but again, focusing on talent on the team, Edmonton perpetually, you know, is just mm-hmm. a major disappointment. You have two of the best, mm-hmm. if not maybe the best, you know, players in the league with McDavid and dry and they just can't seem to put it together. You just don't see the success come out of that, that Edmonton team. I love it. Um, and then, you know, with Chicago, you know, I would say this is going to be a tough year for them. I, I think we expected that, but you know, going maybe, to what maybe, saying, maybe a tough couple of years. Uh, they're they're yeah. not looking very good right now, but I mean, any team that has Taze and Kane, you know, I just expected more, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm probably going to throw in a bonus one on this in Montreal, just yep. as a team that went to the Stanley cup yes. finals. I again, expected it. I, I think that team really got a big boost last year by coming out of that uh, Canadian division where it was probably something that they shouldn't have been in the finals, um, but they kind of got that boost and got in there. But, you know, you don't expect them to have that kind of fall off year after year. So that's just a been... lot of role players, though. I was to say, they I, lost I, a I think a lot think, of role players. I mean, like, even going back to when we were talking about, like, preseason over-unders and we were doing our season preview, I mean, we expected a big fall off. I, I don't know that I expect them to be the worst team in the league, yeah, uh, which they've basically been for the entirety of the year. Um, I mean, we need to fact check that. When was the last time that a team went from Stanley Cup Finals to worst team in the league? Well, we have to call the Elias Sports Bureau and uh, and check that one out. But yeah, it's I mean, it is a truly precipitous fall, and and got to be very painful for the ardent fans of Montreal to have to deal with that. When you're doing Uh, worse than the Coyotes, that's pretty sad. (laughs) That's that that does taste something. Although I will say, I mean, the Coyotes they beat up on the Devils and they they pushed uh they pushed what was it the rangers i think yesterday pretty hard yeah so um, they were up through two periods i think and then they just fell apart yeah uh so ryan what do you have for your last bust yep so my last one is uh hitting too close to home but kyle palmary uh seven points so far he went out with uh, an injury and i think probably COVID on top of it um and hasn't re-entered the lineup so and barry Tross has made it very clear that uh when he was healthy that he probably would be sitting because he hasn't performed and, you know, coming off a, a new contract, not what you want to see. So uh, Kyle Palmieri, big signing in the off season and just really disappointing. Yeah. And it's, and it's a little bit of a strange one because I mean, he was the model of consistency in his devil's tenure. I mean, he was in, in some fairly volatile years for that roster and he was the only guy that you could count on consistently for 20 plus goals for at least 40 to 50 points and kind of gritty top six forward play. And he just hasn't had that juice uh, since he went to the Island and uh, yeah, you know, giving him a nice new contract in the off season, that definitely is a, a big hurt for an Islanders team. That's got a lot of other issues to sort out right now. Yeah. And, you know, I give him a pass when he first came in during the regular season, because I found that players entering the Barry Trotz style of play, it's very formulaic, right? And you're going in and you need to know where your spot is and where everything works. And it takes a lot. We saw it with Chara coming in. We saw it with uh, 
you know, a handful of other guys over the years. But I think the thing that's surprising is, you know, he really played well during the playoffs last year, but just totally regressed this year. And yep. it's just been surprising to see that regression that quickly. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's kick it over to uh, to Ben now for your breakout and bust. And I, I have a feeling that yours are probably gonna be a little bit more West Coast weighted than uh, than Ryan and mine. So uh, let's, let's start off with your let's start off with your breakouts. Yeah. So uh, breakouts. I, I'm you know I I kind of talked about this earlier. It's it's got to be Ovechkin. Um, you know Ryan had that spot on, absolutely spot on. This guy's just playing out of his mind at 36. Um, but then we're gonna move to uh, we're gonna move to a defenseman here in the West, um, and that's gonna be Kale McCarr. Um, he has, I mean, he is playing lights out for, you know, his, his kind of season numbers. Um, he's only played 35 games this year. He's already pushing 38 points. Um, you know, you look at his rookie year, he played 57 and, and only, you know, netted 50 points there. So, you know, he's just over half of what, uh, what he's played in his rookie year. And he's, he's just he's not only playing a very good defensive hockey, but he's also playing incredibly offensively. And, you know, I think his, you know, some of his goals that he scored this year are definitely going to be close to, you know, goal of the year, uh, you know, nominees here. Um, He has incredible hands um, for being a defenseman and what this kid is doing is just absolutely outstanding. Um, Colorado has definitely got something really good going on. Um, both offensively and defensively, which and Taze as well. So scary. I mean, oh, when you look at their their defensive line and, and and Gerard, I mean, they're they are. I, but I, I don't know the last time that I saw a defenseman that has the burst yeah. that Kale McCarr has. I mean, some of the plays that he makes, I mean, he has that that ability to turn it up to top gear in one two one or two steps yep. that few forwards in the league have, let alone defensemen. I mean, it is truly a sight to behold. It's watching incredible. this guy play. And, it, it, you know, I, I mentioned Taze, and I think it's something that really benefits that Avalanche D. Not for nothing, Taze won the AHL All-Star game fastest skater. So, yep. you know, when you, you look at that and you look at that that tandem and what that brings to the equation, you know, I found that the days of the big lumbering defensemen are slowly fading away mm-hmm. and speed kills on defense. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, and what's your, what's your final breakout? Uh, final breakout is going to be, I mean, you kind of talked about it earlier is the, the rookie kind of push in Anaheim. And I'm also going to add uh, a rookie here from Detroit and that's going to be uh, Lucas Raymond and yep. uh, Trevor Zegers. Um, Both of these kids are just playing out of their minds for, you know, being on teams that are definitely subpar and they're definitely keeping in, you know, their teams into the mix right here. I mean, you look at, uh, at, at Lucas and just Detroit, he's got 33 points. He's, uh, which is first overall in rookies, second in goals, second in assists. Uh, but you got to look at what Detroit has been doing. And this is a team that was, what, dead last last year in, uh, you know, in the NHL. And they're not going to be pushing for a playoff just because the Atlantic is too top heavy there. The whole, but, the whole Eastern Conference is brutal. I mean, there's a big gap between the yeah. playoff teams and everybody else right now. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, whoever thought that they'd be above Buffalo, above Ottawa, above Montreal, above Columbus, New Jersey, the Islanders, the Flyers. In and the, and, and look at the core of that team. I mean, there's optimism in Detroit all of a sudden. I mean, you've got Lucas Raymond, you've got Moritz Sider, uh, you've got uh, uh, Larkin. Dylan Larkin, Tyler mm-hmm. Bertuzzi. I mean, they have, and then, and then they rip the well, Hurricanes off. You for have like Delkovich. 
you have like five ace of Bertuzzi, right? He can't well, travel yeah. across the border. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's 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 really impressive. I mean, they've they've done a phenomenal job building up a core, and they have a, lo- a couple of other big prospects still working their way through yep. the, the minors. Um, but Lucas Raymond is dynamic. Yeah, that guy is phenomenal. He's fun to watch. He's definitely and, fun to watch. I mean, with guy. Add, sorry, I, I was just gonna say, like, you know, kind of going with the theme. I think about, we're all talking about to a certain degree. The NHL's in great hands. Yeah, I mean, you look at. The Kale McCars, the Lucas Raymonds, the Zegers. I'm going to throw Jack Hughes in there just because I get to watch him all the time. Yep. And ever since he came back from his shoulder injury, he's playing a level above. Yep. And like you watch some of these young, fast guys with hands like you've never seen in the NHL. I mean, yep. uh, the McK- I mean, even the you know the McKinnons, the Connor. McT- I mean, there's just so much elite talent around the league right now. I think the NHL is in for a really fun decade. And the kids in the wings too. The ones that are going to be here next year, the following year, you know, you yep. just saw Quentin Byfield get his first start last week, and Payton, he's going to Payton, be a- Payton, Payton Krebs scored his first two NHL goals uh, last night coming yeah, out so of I'm the, uh, the coming in with a hot tip for you guys. Sixteen years from now, a young Colton Cummings is slowly developing. There, there we go. <laughs> I like to hear it. I like to hear it. He's already got hands, huh? <laughs> but see, I, I, I don't know. I've I I my. My early scouting report is that he's not going to be a, a, a speedy wing. He's going to be a, a big, bruising, uh, fighting defenseman, you know, tough as nails. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> the name Colton uh, kind of requires it. So of his 22-pound frame is going to be big and bruising. But, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> He'll so. get there. And for all the listeners out there, Colton Cummings is Ryan's two-year-old son. Uh, and you know, with a name like that, he's got to be an NHL I was just player about to point. say that that is a hockey name, right? That is a, that is it's, a, it's a absolute hockey it, yeah. name. All right, over. Ben, take us through your busts. Um, so my bust is, is kind of going to go off of, uh, well, one of them is going to go off of, uh, what Ryan was talking about earlier in the, the Edmonton Oilers, and that's going to be Mikko Kostinen. Um, oh, boy. Edmonton is a uh, you love talking about Edmonton <laughs> I do I do it's beautiful it is absolutely beautiful um to see them get all these first round picks and them just suck is uh it's a it, it's a dream right here um but Koskinen is not doing well I mean I know he's he's kind of a backup for Smith but I mean let's be real Mike Smith is not much better anyways um but uh to be playing 22 games which is 26 total uh, 26th in the nhl right now and being 57th in goals against average at 3.31 56th in save percentage at 0.898 that's i mean that's throwing a lot of of what the edmonton oilers have down the drain and i know you know and getting and getting testy with the coach oh getting testy with the coach getting testy with media um you know i I mean i get it he can't score goals but uh at the same time he has to stop those goals so the few goals that they do get run through the game and and, you know i remember koskinen from when he was now under system and to be honest, he wasn't really anywhere on the radar. He played a few games here and there as guys got injured. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm blanking on the guy. I, I was there at the game when I watched him blow out his knee uh, yeah. in warmups. Nonetheless, he hit a, a rut in the crease. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like Koskinen just came up because of that. He didn't even have a spot. And Islander shipped him off at one point uh, just because they didn't see any potential in him. Yeah. And I was shocked to see that he was still in the league. Um, and then seeing the numbers, I'm much less shocked yeah so. yeah and starting for a team that theoretically was supposed to be a contender uh yeah. i mean best in the western conference 
Yeah. And then, uh, Ben, let's get to your last bust. Uh, again, another one of your favorite topics. Oh, absolutely. Mr. Evander Kane. I'm so fucking stoked. Excuse my language about, uh, the sharks finally dropping him. Um, and a great reason to drop him break COVID protocol again. Um, see you later, but, uh, biggest bust, man, uh, he's played five AHL games, you know, granted he's made 173 K for those three weeks of, uh, of AHL hockey. But, uh, man, when you're, a player of the caliber of Kane and you don't have teams that are really able or, or willing to give any draft prospects to get him at 1.75 is it's incredibly unfortunate. Um, and for him to, you know, to be one of the top scorers on the sharks last year um, and then dropping to, you know, being a free agent mid season um, where you don't even get anyone who's willing to trade for you. Um, he will end up on, on a team. I mean, to be honest, it looks like uh, Edmonton's going to be picking him up um, for nothing, making league minimum. Um, but to go from where you were at, you know, making almost over $7 million to league minimum um, because nobody absolutely wants you is the, I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest busts of, of the year for me. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate. It's just dumb I mean, mistake I... and dumb move after dumb move. I'm not surprised. And, you know, he, he needs every bit of that 173 K with his current financial position. Yep. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think we talked about the last time he's, he's a head case, you know, uh, yeah. you know, I referenced him with uh, D'Angelo and, you know, at least for now, D'Angelo seems like he's turned things around. Um, you know, I think of Vander Kane, he's had a very checkered history. He's had the issues with Bufflin uh, when they were in uh, with the jets and, you know, he's kind of had issues all along the way. And, you know, a guy that's trying to skirt, you know, COVID protocols and he lied about his, uh, his vaccination status. And, you know, you just go through and you go, you know, there's just an immaturity that is, you know, I'm, I reference it with the Islanders. You know, I cannot picture the Islanders ever bringing somebody like that into the locker room. It just kills the vibe in the locker room. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big locker room guy. I probably overdo it. Um, but, you know, I would say the Islanders are probably the same way with Lou Lamarillo and Barry Trotz. But, you know, there's an element to it that you just can't introduce that element to your locker room. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Well, and yep. he had that option, that opportunity to restart things in Buffalo. He had that opportunity to restart things in San Jose. And look what he's doing. He's continuing down that that path where everything I mean, it's, is it's, just destruction. And you're, you, yeah. you've got, you know, Kevin Curtis out of San Jose, you know, talking about how Hurdle isn't didn't want to re-sign a, a long-term deal because of issues in the locker room. And who mm -hmm. are we expecting that to be revolving around? And that's Evander Kane. By the way, well, Hurdle on the edge of one of my breakouts. Yeah, I've been he, very much across with Hurdle. Yeah, Hurdle, Hurdle, Timo Meyer. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, all the skill in the world, but a, a pretty consistent history of just being a problem. Yep. Uh, but look, I, I want to finish this on a positive note. Again, I think the biggest thing to me going through all of our breakouts and busts is just, just the excitement. And uh, you know, I think this has been a fantastic first half of an NHL season. Uh, Ryan maybe thinks a little bit less of that, just given everything that's gone with the Islanders, but <laughs> I, you know, all in all, I mean, the, the We're second the, half team, Howard, we're second yeah. half team. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. What are you going to tell yourself? Climbing out of the basements um, to get that last spot. Huh? But you know, the, the number of young guys emerging, you know, the handful of, of really elite kind of, uh, you know, faces of the league, the Ovechkin types that are still playing high level hockey, uh, the teams in unconventional markets that are having phenomenal years. Yep. Um, it, it's just a great time to be a hockey fan. It's a great time to be watching the NHL. 
Um, super excited about it. Uh, but with that, I will kick it to you, Ben, for our next topic. And we're going to start talking about some, some issues. Yeah. Being we're going to go to, we're going to go from a high to a low here really yeah. quick. Um, and, and we got to talk about this because it's, it's hitting the, uh, kind of hitting the media right now. And um, we got to talk about, you know, the issues with, uh, with, you know, this kind of uh, referee scandal that, uh, and, and lawsuits that are coming out. So we've got two NHL refs who uh, were working within the Tampa Bay system. And um, they've kind of filed a lawsuit saying that they were, um, you know, fired for wrongdoings in reporting their colleague who used racist and, and sexually charged language for multiple years. Um, and it kind of got to a point where we already, we, ha- we had them recording what this person was saying. And, you know, we've seen it, you know, previously in Tampa uh, back in 2020 when, you know, there was another issue of NHL refereeing that went pushed under the table and kind of settled out of the, out of the court system. And now we're seeing it again. So like, I want to get your guys' takes on on what's going on with kind of this debacle that we have within, you know, refereeing. I mean, mean, is it just refereeing or is it the NHL in general? That was going to be my question. Yeah. I, I didn't want to put it too big on the NHL, but yeah, no. I mean, I would say NHL that you know, thinking about how many non-white players, I'll, I'll kind of generalize it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could. It's pretty tough to really come up with the names and the ones that you can think of. So, guys like, uh, say Kyle Oposo, who's still in the league at the moment. You know, he's he's half black, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're not even really pushing the boundaries so you have like oh, a Ryan, I, I i would I, I wouldn't even go more general than that though it's i, I don't even know that's just an nhl thing it's a hockey issue i mean hockey has a racism issue hockey has a diversity issue it you know you're slowly starting to see more diversity in the sport but it is an overwhelmingly white overwhelmingly middle and upper class sport um that a has has had i'd say not had to deal with diversity on the same timeline that a lot of our other professional sports have our other sports have um and b has shown very little willingness to deal with it um and uh, that's on all levels i mean you you're seeing the issues up and down juniors i mean just in the last week you've had two bad issues uh with uh racism in the middle of games in the minor leagues um you've had multiple situations where the nhl whether it's uh racism whether it's sexual harassment really try to put you know shove things under the rug um and move on there's just not an interest and a, and a willingness from the top down to deal with these issues uh and it's becoming this this kind of really distressing repetitive uh kind of black eye for a sport that you know we all love um because the people in charge are just unwilling to do the right thing uh not an easy thing uh, you know, in terms of trying to undo uh, a really kind of extensive history of wrongs uh, and make a, a full-scale culture change to a sport. Um, but the right and the necessary things for this sport to continue uh, in its place in our society. And I mean, this is just another, to me, this is just one more piece of a, a much larger issue uh, going on in the sport of hockey that, uh I don't know that we have the right people in charge at any level of the sport to, to make these changes. Yeah. And I, I think the, you kind of hit it on the head before 
um you know it's a middle class upper middle class sport you know it's as somebody who's played hockey for 30 years it's expensive to play ice time's expensive equipment's expensive you know you go out i i suited up my kids right the other day and before i even knew if they liked the game it cost me 600 bucks in just equipment so you know it's something that is a commitment and you know i think that teams in the league are at least i can speak for the islanders because i you know i live here i see what they're doing in the community um they're going out of their way to try to integrate the local community and get more people involved in hockey both you know of all races i should say involved in hockey and i think that's the the key that's really needed is the more diversity that's in the game the more that people are seeing that diversity and it kind of melts the issues away and, and, I, and I don't even know, you know, melting away, but it, it forces people to address them in, in, in a way that they haven't yet. Uh, I mean, Ryan, to your point, there just still aren't that many, uh, you know, there isn't much diversity in the, in the higher levels of hockey. And so the higher levels of hockey really have not had to deal with it. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's just there's not a lot a, of diversity in the lower levels of hockey either, to be honest. No, with you. I, I, but it's I, and it's just this massive. Problem, I think it's but, getting yeah. there though. It's it's starting to get there as as I mean, things kind of open up a little bit more. I'll say I go to skating classes on Saturday, yeah. and there's let's call it about sixty kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, two are non-white. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. It's it's really not. I I really don't. I mean, I'll be honest, like. I, I, I played in high school on a team that was part of the NHL diversity uh, initiative. Um, there's a team called the Harlem Rangers. I was the only white person on that team. Uh, we played in NHL diversity tournaments with teams from all over the country. Um, there are definitely a lot of players out there, um, but they are a very, very small subset of the total hockey playing population. Yeah. Um, and at least from what I've seen, I know that the, the NHL is making more public efforts to try to correct things or, you know, but it, we're so far off. Uh, we're so far off. And it's just, again, I think in the, in the interest of keeping hockey amongst the, the major four sports in North America, in terms of keeping hockey moving in the right direction, um, it's going to become a huge problem yeah. uh, because it really is just, I mean, light years behind baseball, basketball, and football. Um, and even a lot of the other sports, I mean, even golf in a lot of ways is it's well behind uh, in terms of pushing that that diversity issue. And so this ref issue, I think, is just a, a symptom of a larger problem with diversity in the league and a, and the symptom of a, a much bigger problem that can be addressed a lot quicker. We have a, it, which is a, a crisis of confidence in the leaders of the NHL. Well, and I think what pisses me off most about this situation that we have with the ref scandal here is that most of the most of the the derogatory remarks and and language was not even pushed on a hockey player it was yep. pushed on someone who was singing the national anthems at the arena yep. which just shows that the the focus of hockey is such a uh, kind of a, a i don't even say the focus but like the roots of hockey is such a racist mindset um which yeah. is which is a huge huge dysfunction so yeah it, so it's it's bad it's, it's really bad it, it is um but so I, you know i think we should move on now i think we have one other uh kind of nhl disaster uh to talk about today um and that is what's going on in philadelphia right now yeah uh and so for everybody who hasn't been uh super tied into this um 
Bobby Clark, the president of the Philadelphia Flyers, was on a podcast recently, the Cam and Strick podcast, co-hosted by one of my favorite players, uh, Cam Jansen, uh, former NHL enforcer uh, of the New Jersey Devils. Um, <laughs> but it was the, the comments that he made were very interesting. So uh, Ron Hextall, the former Flyers goalie, former Flyers GM, current Pittsburgh Penguins GM, uh, was really taken to task by Bobby Clark. Uh, and he made a number of, of allegations uh, during that podcast, both about the way that Ron Hextall ran things, his personality in terms of uh, really shutting people out of the process, really, you know, kind of leading uh, from himself, not leading kind of as part, as part of an organization, um, really kind of creating a, a somewhat toxic work environment, um, but also really got into some some specifics around things that, he believes that Ron Hextall massively screwed up. And, and if these things are true, uh, there is no doubt that Ron Hextall made uh, some major errors along the way. Uh, the first and foremost of them, the one that got the most news attention, was uh, taking Nolan Patrick, number two overall in the 2017 draft, uh, over Kale McCarr, uh, I mean, who went number four. Is that four. really, like, a big thing, though? I mean, I no. think... Patrick was supposed be. to go first overall. So yeah, Patrick, I mean, was, yeah. Honestly, so, kind of first overall. It was actually so I think kind of shocking that he wasn't. Bobby Clark's discussion. So when when it happened, and the Devils had the first overall pick in that draft, so I was very paying very close attention to it. Patrick and Nico Hirschier were the two people in discussion for that top pick the whole way. Uh, Patrick had been kind of anointed the number one pick ahead of that last year. Um, and then Nico Hirschier had an incredible final season. And for very mo- the majority of that lead-up season to that draft, it was really Nico Hishier or Nolan Patrick for that top spot. Um, but the part that Bobby Clark got into was the fact that all of the Flyer scouts allegedly wanted Kale McCarr, did not want Nolan Patrick to a man, did not want Nolan Patrick as the number two pick. Um, and and he made, again, he made a variety of other allegations there. I think the bigger problem here is the Flyers. Uh, you know, Bobby Clark is still the president of this team. Uh, they are massively underperforming this year. They got housed by the Buffalo Sabres in Buffalo last night. Um, this team is a disaster right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and, a, and a particularly perplexing one because they're not likely to get themselves in the playoff contention. If they do, they're maybe, maybe pushing for a wild card spot. Um, they're not a particularly young roster. Uh, they have some valuable assets on this team, but this lineup has not gotten it done now for multiple years. Last year was a disaster as well. Um, and so you're starting to this point. I mean, this, you know, this Bobby Clark, Ron Hextall thing was a, 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 you know, an interesting media item, but I think it gets to the the point of what do you do if you're running the Philadelphia Flyers right now, what direction do you go? I mean, I think the first thing you do is get rid of gritty. That's clearly the problem. So, <laughs> yeah. The mascot choice is disturbing. I'll, I'll say that much. I think gritty haunts my dreams. So, uh, yeah, I think it all, it starts from the mascot down. Well, I think, you know, a big thing that we, we have to look at here is that, you know, when, when teams are on such a losing streak as Philadelphia is, I mean, I know this wasn't, you know, this was earlier in the week and, you know, they've lost game since, but I mean, they're on 11 game losing streak right now. And when you are, on a streak like this, you're going to look for every single, you know, issue and, and magnify this, you know, to a T. 
And I think that's got to be a, a huge, huge play in this on, you know, throwing blame here and there for this 11 game losing streak. Granted, teams won't go through an 11 game streak like this, but they'll go through six, eight, you know, uh, probably not a 10 game streak, um, you know, throughout their seasons. And that's where you look to point the blame. And I, mean, I think that's I just would kind say, of though, exactly. having just seen back to back games from the Islanders against the, uh, against the flyers they weren't actually as bad as i expected them to be they they didn't play bad you know they lost but they didn't play bad so i was kind of shocked by it i i expected worse from them and you know there might be an element of luck in with that 11 game streak but you know i think it just it hurts the morale which is never helpful and you know i think rising tides float all ships you know i think equally when you know, I think the tide's so far out at this point that, you know, everything's beached, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you kind of sit there and go, you know, would these issues be coming out if they weren't on an 11 game streak? Probably not. Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Um, all right, Ben, let's get to our last NHL topic, uh, for kind of the around the league portion of the, the podcast. Yeah. And that's gonna, we're going to be talking about the all-star game. Uh, so this week we had, uh, this week, I believe, uh, we had our, you know, our teams come out and, um, you know, who we're going to have for both conferences here. And there's been a lot of talk into, you know, should every single team have a player represented in representative mm-hmm. in the league? And I think the biggest one um, that we really have to look at is the snub of, uh, of Marshawn here. Um, maybe even, you know, Shesterkin as well. Um, there's a few others that we can look at, but, you know, my biggest thing was to, you know, ask you guys, if you, what, where kind of you guys are on this, every single team has to have a player in the, you know, in the, the all-star game, because we've got some teams who are just absolutely trash here. Yes. You can pull out a good player here and there, but do they deserve it? I mean, you've got the Montreal Canadians who it's only won eight games this year. Um, should they have a, a, a player representative there? The Coyotes, the Kraken, uh, the Kraken, I can kind of see a little bit more just to get that hype up in Seattle, but <laughs> do they have I, someone even uh, that should be there? I think absolutely. Yes. So the reason why is, you know, on bad teams, there are good players. And the reason why they probably don't appear as good is because they're on a bad team. But I think more in general, the all-star game is about fun. I mean, there's, yeah. there's not an element of, you know, anything it's not like baseball where it actually matters for anything so uh, it's about fun right and what's fun about not being able to see at least one of your players in the all-star game um you know i'd actually take it a step further in that i would really like the nhl to change the way they do the skills competition because to me the skills competition is way more exciting than the all-star game Mm -hmm. the all-star game to me is kind of boring i wouldn't i usually don't watch it to be honest with you maybe here and there a little bit but what i would propose is actually taking team nominated uh fastest skater hardest shooter you know etc because i think that you're actually doing the nhl a major disservice and that there are players who will never make the all-star team yep but they are really fast really hard shooters whatever it is but they don't have the overall skill ability and i think being able to showcase individual skills better uh would relay well so i think you know, well, and, and brian I, I think what you're getting at is is and frankly i mean you're you're 100 on my my thoughts on all of this i mean yeah. I, I completely agree with you i think every team should have a, 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 a nominee uh because it is a fan thing and and it's no you know any fan base doesn't have a, even a single player represented they're not going to pay any attention um yeah. 
But I, I almost think about the, the skills competition. I think what you were getting to, but I, I think the way that you, to think about it is the way the NBA does things. You know, you don't have to be on the NBA all-star team to compete in the slam dunk competition. Mm-hmm. You choose the four or eight fastest skaters in the league, the most exciting players, you know, we're, we'll get, we'll get to snubs, but there are a couple of guys that did not make this all-star game that I would love to ski like in some of those skills relay competitions and things like that. So because they are unreal. The past two Islanders nominees that won the fastest skater, Michael Grabner and Matt Barzell mm-hmm. never, well, Barzell hasn't been able to defend because he didn't make it this year. Grabner will never make the all-star game because that was a one-time thing where they brought rookies versus like kind of the yep. vets and he made it in through that. So you sit there and go, these are guys that admittedly are, you know, the fastest among the fastest and they're not competing. Right. So what does that really say about being the fastest player in the NHL? Matt Barzell said himself, he wasn't even the fastest player on his team. He was referring to Nick Letty. Yeah. Um, but you know, you kind of sit there and go, if you're not even the fastest player on your team, but yet you're dubbed the fastest player in the NHL, why don't we just amp this up a bit? You know, my thing is how much time would it really take? There's so much dead time in between these heats that if we just kind of ran them back to back and you just had guys just, you know, skating around the rink or just continually taking shots and you mm-hmm. say, rather than going rounds and doing this tournament style, what if you just took all 30 teams and said, Hey, you get two shots, go for it. Whoever's the fastest after your two shots, all 30 teams, you know, everybody has a representative. They win. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know that's going to ever happen for a couple of years. One, it's more well, positive. It no, it won't. Yeah. But... I, I, and, and I don't know that that's the way. I, to me, it's it's less about like trying to establish the fastest player, factually the fastest player in the NHL or factually the, the hardest shot or whatever else. I think it's a, it's the fun. It's the excitement factor. And I just don't think that the NHL should tie itself to if you're in the All-Star game, you that's the only pool you can choose from for the skills competitions. I think the skills competition should be about who are going to be the most fun players for fans to watch in that competition? Or do it as, oh, sorry, I th- right. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm just I, saying, I we've done that. Yeah. No, I'm just saying like, you know, it's, it's not, and it's not about every single team having a nominee for the skills competition. It's, not, it's just like, again, I think the NBA does it the right way. Yeah. They choose four of the most exciting dunkers in the NBA to compete in the dunk contest. Yeah. Some of them might be all-stars. They might not. A lot of times they are, I'm but sorry. it's about, that excitement factor. Yeah. And we've got time prior to what goes on TV. Yep. Take a, take like, like uh, Ryan, what you were saying, take some rounds, have every team submit one player to that, do a round. So you get the 10 fast, 10 fastest skaters out of, you know, that first round. And then that's going to be the ones, you know, who are going to be your, your people yeah. who are going to be on air, take your five hardest shots check those out, then give them the opportunity to do it when it counts, when you're on national television there, Um, you know, top goals, give them all an opportunity to Mm -hmm. score a goal, you know, off the breakaway here to, to get something that is, you know, out of this world. Yeah. And and, and, time, but I, and again, so I, I think that makes a ton of sense, but yeah, going again, going back to the initial question, undoubtedly i think every nhl team should have a representative coming from a, you know a devil's team where you know for the last you know couple of years we have not been very good um but we have a representative every year mm-hmm. if i watch the all-star game it's to watch the metro divisions you know three on three or whatever to see how you know Heeshear or jack hughes or whoever performs because it's exciting to me to see them stacked up there you know with some of the other stars of the league uh and see how they represent yeah. um 
that is about the only portion of the actual all-star games that I will watch. Um, I want to point something out. The fact that the Islanders nominee is Adam Pellick, who is by all means a defensive defenseman is laughable in the sense that you're sitting there going in an all-star game with no defenses played. This is the guy that was selected and don't get me wrong. He deserves it hundred percent, but that's not going to make for fun hockey. Like that's not the point of the all-star game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I guess that gets, that gets to the, the surprises and snubs piece of this all-star issue. Ben, I don't know if you want to walk us through a little bit of, of at least some of the, the high level names are your thoughts on the, on the surprises and snubs piece. I mean, to be honest, I think we should each take a, take a, a surprise and snub if, uh, if y'all are, are kind of okay with that. And yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start it off with the surprises. Um, my big surprise of this is going to be Thatcher Demko. I mean, we talked mm. about, uh, you know, the Vancouver Canucks, or I don't think we've actually talked about how the Vancouver Canucks are actually doing on this podcast, but um, they're not doing well whatsoever within this. And, and, you know, I, I would definitely say goaltending is a big aspect of that. And, you know, for to put a goalie in who's, you know, 16, 14 and one, almost only 500 here and, you know, put him in kind of as, you know, one of the Pacific division goaltenders here. I, I think that's a, a disservice to not only the Canucks, but also, you know, the Pacific division. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Canucks have much more highly valuable valuable players there and if you can tell me that your only other goaltender that you can put higher than that is john gibson Hmm. um what are we doing here so i'm going to double up on that because my pick is cam talbot and as a guy who he plays in the wild so you already have your representative with kaprizov right yeah yeah he has a 300 uh goals against and a 909 save percentage yeah yeah I don't know about this year. I can't speak for this year, but historically 918 is average. So we're saying that this guy is nine points below average mm-hmm. and yet he's making the all-star game. Yeah. And to me, that was the, the goalie that made the least sense. I, in my surprise, I mean, you guys both went goalie and I think both of those are super valid surprises. My biggest one was Adrian Kempe um, and not because he's not a good player and he's not exciting. Um, but to me, this was really a sign of what I think the NHL was trying to push with the also game, which was the, the rise of the kind of the youth movement, because I mean, you just look at the, the Kings, both by production and by reputation, there's a very clear person who should be in that spot instead of him. And that's Anze Kopitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's really not much of a discussion to be had. Uh, he's far ahead of campaign points. Uh, he has long been a star of this league. He's the captain of that team. He is uh, an el- uh, both an elder statesman and a, and a high quality leader in the NHL. Um, and for the Kings one spot to have him left out for a campaign makes no sense to me. Absolutely no sense. He's also, I mean, Kopitar's just having a fantastic season. I don't, I don't get it. Um, that one was probably the most head scratching of all of them. Even in cases where superstar names were left out for lesser names, a lot of times the production had it make sense. This one does not make sense, both on a name recognition or a production basis. And so really to me the the biggest head scratcher of all of the uh all-star nominations for this year yeah all right so who's your who's your guys's biggest snub ryan why don't you kick us off yeah you know i'm torn there's there's two that i'm thinking um i'm gonna throw the one out that i don't want to say i guess yeah and I'm just with yeah oh yeah no, i'm not i'm with you okay uh, <laughs> okay so number two is marshawn because he there we go yeah, I mean, you can go with either one. I'm going to go Shesterkin. I think as 
the leading goaltender in the NHL, it's just shocking that he didn't make, you know, he didn't make it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the one I'm going to go with just because um, you're having that type of year. It just seems like a massive snub, you know, especially when we talked about guys like Cam Talbot that are making it. And, you know, I don't know how Cam Talbot makes it in the 909 and just starts at like a 938 save percentage or something like that. Like it just, it baffles me. Yeah. No, I think that makes total sense. Um, for me, I'll be honest. I was, I was having, I mean, there are so many snubs on this list that are, that are big names. Um, to me, it really came down to two though. One was Lucas Raymond. Uh, and I know Clark, you know, Larkin has a couple more points and he's the captain of that team, but Raymond being the, the rookie scoring leader, being one of the more electric players in this league, um, and one of the leaders of this up and coming team, that, that was a, a tough one for me. I was really hoping to see him uh, in this tournament. Uh, and the other one is Roman Yossi. Uh, I mean, he is clear cut, you know, top five, top six defensemen in this league. Um, and Saros absolutely deserves to be in the all-star game. He's had a phenomenal year, but having a guy like Yossi not make it just seems silly. I mean, he is better than a large chunk of the defensemen that can be playing in this all-star game. Uh, and it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on Lucas Raymond there. Um, I, I think that's a you know definitely a big one here, especially when you've you've, you've got three Tampa Bay Lightning. I, I get it, Stamkos, Hedman, and Vasilevsky. They're, I mean, they're they're going to get people into the. And they're stadium. all they're all elite. I mean, they're all yeah. elite players. So I, yeah. I get it. But, but yeah, that's a tough one. When you have you know one player from each and every other team. I guess does you've got two from Boston, right? No, just one from Boston. Like, Bergeron, right? Yeah. Right. Which 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 right. the which was the issue with Marshawn, right? It became a coin flip between Bergeron and Marshawn for that spot. Yeah. Whichever one Marshawn has it. the better stats, which is Marshawn crazy. does have the better I, stats. I, I agree. I I think that Marshawn should have gotten it between the two of them. Yeah, but I think like, it's a COVID protocol issue. You can't have people licking each other yeah. <laughs> you're not wrong you are not wrong there. but to me it's also the inconsistency right like if you're putting kempe in over kopitar then you're saying that you want to go youth movement yeah. and then you go larkin over raymond uh it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me yeah you know even trying to figure out a way to shoehorn troy terry and zagerson and maybe not put gibson in gibson's been fine but yeah you can't tell me that the all-star game wouldn't be more exciting if you had Terry and Zegerson versus having Gibson in hundred percent, hundred percent. It's rough. It's definitely rough. Or get these kids in, in the, the skills competition. Absolutely. You know, or, let's, you know what? let's stop all this issue with the, uh, you know, just being in the game. Let's get them in the skills. I mean, would I, it make sense to have a futures game the way like baseball does? That, that was exactly what I was going to get to. Like not, futures or the uh, NBA freshman, does, like, the freshman sophomore yep. thing. Like, Make make it and you know versus instead of doing conferences, literally do like a Western Eastern Conference three 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 on three, stock a lineup and go at it and have yeah. a have a fun competition. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, one way or another, I'm still excited. I mean, I think the skills competition is gonna be fun. I think the three on three is a much better format. I also like it because you can do tune you really? into. Well, I like it because you can tune into the matchups that you care about so like i'll i'll tune in for the metropolitan divisions games uh and i can see the players that i want to see in a condensed format i hated watching the full all-star game because if like back in the day if Eliash or, Bur- or Burdur or whatever 
there was like a period or a couple of shifts I was interested in. The rest of it I could have cared less about. I mean, I feel like the three on three is too much. I would rather see four on four. I think that there's too much room for a game in which there's no defense. Yeah. But that's the whole, that's the whole also game. But uh, anyways, Ben, uh, I guess one of the other pieces of the uh, podcast that we always like to touch on before we wrap things up is, uh, is the betting side uh, and the puck flip. So uh, why don't you take us through uh, this month's puck flip? Yeah. So um, we got to look at uh, what was happening with the, within our last uh our last podcast bets, the uh, the previous ones uh, were going to be the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, I had them at plus 2,100. They've moved up to plus 1,600 here. Um, and the Las Vegas Golden Knights at plus 790, I told you to stay away from them. They've actually jumped a little bit to plus 680. Um, I still think that um, I, I still think the Penguins pick is okay. Um, they haven't had as much success, um, you know, with injuries and, uh, COVID protocol here. So I think that's one, that one's an okay bet. I still would stay away from the Las Vegas golden Knights, even though they've dropped a little bit here. Um, but, uh, we're going to kind of move away to, uh, kind of what our new picks are going to be with value. Um, first thing is I'm really surprised that this one is sitting at uh, plus 1600 here and that's going to be the new york rangers um we've been really looking at uh at the way that they've uh they've come out of the gates here and you know have been playing strong without shesterkin in you had gorgiev playing absolutely and incredibly for his what like three or four games um and he definitely took the reins which i think will be a good kind of a number two goalie spot there um and you know they're a bunch of young kids which is uh it only means that they're going to progress throughout the year uh, one that I would not take is the Nashville Predators. Uh, they're sitting at plus 2,200 right now. Still long shot here. Um, I think they're hot right now, but I don't think they're going to stay strong um, kind of throughout the, you know, kind of dog days of, of this league. Um, and I would definitely stay away from that pick. Um, yeah. 220 is, I mean, it's great return there, um, but the likelihood of you winning a bet here is not good. Absolutely. No, I, I love those takes. Uh, so we're starting to get a little bit long and we've got a couple of important things to touch on before we wrap things up. Uh, and the first of those is our beer reviews. So Ben, uh, you had a, a different beer than Ryan and I. Uh, so why don't we start off uh, with your bourbon barrel aged quad from uh, Brewery Vivant, Wizard Burial Ground 2021. Yeah. Uh, tell us what you think and uh, what you're uh, what you're rating for that one is. Uh, so this one came in at 10.8%, which uh, is, is, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say it's high for a Belgian quad, um, but uh, it is, you know, high for the beers that I drank. But the good thing about this is that it didn't taste like it was a really high alcohol percentage here. Um, so you didn't get that, that overly, you know, uh, it's a boozy, boozy, ethanol-y kind of, uh, yeah. you know, taste to it. Um, which was great. It had a great color to it, really caramely. Um, it had, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, sugar notes. It had those malty kind of sweetnesses there. Um, and it really, to, to me, it was not bitter. Um, so it was kind of on that low bitterness, uh, you know, aspect of it. Um, it was a wonderful beer. I would definitely drink it again. I would definitely go out and buy it again. Um, this is one I got off to Vauro, so it's going to be a little bit hard for me to actually mm -hmm. get this beer again. Um, but anytime that I do see this, uh, the wizard burial grounds, um, from Vivant, I will definitely be picking it up. Um, I'm going to give this one, 
I don't drink quadruples too often, uh, so I don't have many to kind of base this off of. So I'm going to give it a little bit, I'd say give it a little bit lower so I can have that wiggle room between the highs and the lows mm -hmm. on this, but I'm still going to give it a four. Uh, I'll give it a four out of five. All right. Yeah, I love it. And uh, again, bourbon barrel aged quad, not something you see uh, too frequently. So sure. good, good, unique style to bring in. Uh, so Ryan, you and I drank the same, uh, two beers again, for those of you that, that listen to the opening segment of this podcast, uh, these were the two beers, uh, from bond brothers beer company in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, so let's start off, let's go beer by beer. So let's start off with apricot reserve, which was the, uh, bourbon barrel aged apricot sour ale. Uh, Ryan, tell me what you think. So this one's an interesting one. I'm not exactly sure what part of the equation is factoring in. So as Whit mentioned, um, I had opened this before he gave the recommendation to roll it. So I might have gotten a, a top half, bottom half situation. Okay. Um, it may also be a temperature situation. So I pulled it out of the fridge probably about 20 minutes before we started recording, thinking that would probably warm it up to a level that would work well for it. Sure. But I think that it's gotten noticeably better as it's warmed. So mm. like where I'm drinking it right now, I'm really loving this thing. Um, so I'm probably going to come in at a three, seven, five on it okay. out of five. Um, you know, I think that when it was colder, uh, definitely way more acidic, way more tart as it's warm. The sweetness has really come through nice. You're really getting more apricot coming through with it. Um, you know, I think that's, that's probably the big difference that I've noticed. And I'm not sure if it's a temperature issue or it's an issue of, uh, you know, the top half, bottom half, because I didn't roll it. So mm -hmm. interesting to get your thoughts since you did roll it. Yeah. So I actually, I mean, I liked it throughout. I actually liked it because I rolled it. I think I actually liked it when it was still a little bit cooler. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this one. I think that the apricot flavor is super bright in here. Again, we talked about it with wit, you know, surprising how relatively little apricot they actually used um, on this one. Um, I'm also generally just a big fan of the 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 sour cultures that that Bond uses. They're not highly highly acidic to like a to a shocking point. Um, there's a nice tartness in there, uh, but again, the apricot plays up nicely. There is a little bit of that oakiness, that kind of tannic wood component to it. Uh, to me, this is some. This is a four out of five. Uh, this is you know wood drink again, wood purchase again. Um, it's a really nice sour. Um, so I would sour, say yeah. I got more oak in the beginning when it yep. was on the colder side than I do on the warmer side. I think the apricot comes out more when it's warmer. Yeah, I would um, agree. And I actually liked the oakiness that came through in the beginning. It was just a little bit too acidic for me in the beginning. So interesting. Yeah. I, no, I think the, a lot of the pectin and like that real, like juice, that kind of like almost like jammy apricot thing comes out as it warms up. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me that again, four out of five, I really liked it. Um, sours are, Probably the style I drank the least uh, and maybe struggle with the most. And this is this is a really nice one. Uh, the next one up is uh, Fafo, F-A-F-O. Uh, this is our uh, smash single malt, single hop barley wine, also single barrel. Uh, this is a collab with Divine Barrel Brewing out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, a little bit of a, of a heavier beer here at 13.4% on the barley wine uh ryan tell us what you think of this one i mean for starters and you know i mentioned it with off air uh, i mean this thing hides that 
at 13.4% incredibly well. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, what's a bad, bad man for putting this in there? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, this is this is going to get Uncle Ned uninvited to the uh, the Thanksgiving you know party after he uh, he says some inappropriate things after a couple of these. <laughs> so um, really smooth, honestly, probably the smoothest barley wine I've I've ever had. Um, it has a nice molasses like thickness to it that really just coats your mouth. Uh, a lot of molasses flavor to it as well, though. Yep. Um, and you know, I think we mentioned it earlier. There's a little little chocolate in there little vanilla that comes through um you know it's has a nice nuance and then as you kind of transition you know it's very subtle but there's that bourbon heat that kind of goes mm -hmm. down on the on the back of your throat as you drink it um this one's really nice and i'm honestly i'm on the fence between going four five or four seven five yeah uh, i mean this is definitely something that i would seek out again i would i would go out of my way um i'm gonna go four seven five I, I love think it's it. that good. Yeah, I, I honestly, and again, we, we talked about this on the opening segment, bourbon, bourbon barrel aged barley wines are some of my favorite kind of cold weather kind of nightcap type beers these days. Uh, and, you know, Wits and the Bond Brother kind of barrel aged clean beers, the, their Imperial Stouts, their barley wines are some of my favorites. I think they just do, they consistently execute on all of those beers um, and this one is no exception. I mean, truly unique among the barley wines I've tried in terms of, again, we talked about it coming, you know, kind of in the opening seven, it's much darker, uh, in appearance than a lot of barley ones that you're going to pour, uh, the flavor ebbs a lot closer to that molasses, almost bordering on chocolate flavor, uh, versus a lot of, uh, barley ones that are more in kind of the caramel toffee, uh, kind of range, um, and yeah, I'm picking up some some just really nice kind of vanilla notes from the bourbon barrel. Uh, this the the alcohol heat is not super aggressive here. Um, this is you know I, I don't necessarily recommend uh, doming a 500 milliliter bottle of this uh, on a Sunday <laughs> night. Uh, it's going to make for a rough Monday. You might um, want to get a little weird. Yeah, like but you know, uh, an eight to twelve ounce pour of one of these on a cold night uh, is it would be fantastic. Uh, I'm going to give this one uh, a four or five. I really enjoyed this beer. I'd absolutely drink and purchase it again. Uh, as I always do, I will continue to, uh, to keep an eye out for some of these kind of clean barrel age releases that, uh, Wit and the bond team are churning out. Um, but yeah, a really phenomenal beer. Uh, really excited about this one. Really glad that we all got to try it. Uh, Ben, you'll get yours soon. I'm you can, so looking forward to it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to check back in with you once you get your bottles in um but guys uh this was a fun episode i i, I enjoyed tonight's uh, discussion i really enjoyed having wit on uh he is he is truly the mad scientist uh when it comes to brewing uh so really fun to pick his brain uh but that's all we've got for episode four of the biscuits and barrels podcast uh, as a reminder these are monthly podcasts focused on our love of hockey and barrel aged beers so tune in wherever you get your podcasts uh to see pictures and reviews of the beers using this month's episode Tune into 90 Second Beer Review. That's 90 Second Beer Review on Instagram. And for more great sports beer and betting content, check out the Taproom Sports Podcast Network. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in February. Cheers, everybody. Love it. Cheers.